This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. I'm Roger, that's Rob. We're going to talk about our mayor for the next little while here. And keep in mind, at uh, 10.30, we're going to open the phones up to you, 974-8255, because we want to know what you think about this matter. Now, a couple of things. First of all, this is of varying degrees of, of seriousness to different Calgarians. Uh, some think it's kind of shades of Ralph Klein, you know? Guy who just was who he was, says what he said, and sometimes apologized, sometimes he didn't. But we loved Ralph. Uh, even when he threw a bunch of money on the Florida homeless shelter and told drunk, uh, told uh, excuse me, uh, homeless people, "Why don't you guys get a job?" Yeah, he was drunk. That's what I was trying to say. He was quite drunk, <laughs> yeah. as a matter of fact. And uh, look, Ralph Klein went on to admit that he had a drinking problem and he did stop drinking and he apologized for his behavior. And I think that even that went too far for Ralph Klein supporters to say, "Look, we appreciate Ralph being Ralph, but you just you, you can't do that." You know, you, you, there, there's a there's a line. Now, did Nahed Ninshi cross a line in his uh, Lyft trip in, in Boston, right? We, we mentioned this last week because there was this whole big meeting on April 20th talking about public transit and the Southwest BRT. And, you know, it was this very important issue. And where's the mayor? Well, the mayor's in Boston. Someone wants him to give a speech. And uh, I guess when the mayor goes to other cities that actually have ride sharing, the mayor uses those ride sharing services. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so he got himself a, a Lyft Ride. Well, presumably, hang on, hang on a second. Let's just mop this up because he's clearly read the bylaws, understands how safe it is to take a Lyft car in, in Boston because if it's in an accident, that driver's insured, that company's insured, everything's uh, above board, presumably, anyway. Well, we think, yeah. Mm. Anyway, so uh, that that's the the basis for all of this, all right? So and then she's uh, in Boston, gets himself a Lyft ride, and happened to, to find a driver who's um, really interested in, in chatting with his passengers. And uh, boy, let me just play this because he was pretty excited to learn who his passenger was. So I am a politician. You're a politician? I am. I am mayor. I am the mayor of Calgary. The mayor? You're the mayor of Calgary? I got the mayor of Calgary? Oh, my God. Okay. It's pumped. Pumped. The mayor of Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. You know, I guess that'd be somewhat exciting. You just expect that you're just picking up random people and well, they're of, of no importance. But, uh, wow, look at that. All of a sudden you get the, the mayor of a big city, which I assume he knew. I don't know. Do you think he actually knows Calgary? No, I think that this is the kind of guy who's, like, excited about everything. Somebody could get in and say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, manager, of a, <clears throat> I'm a manager of a Taco John's in Wichita, Taco Kansas. Taco John's? Man, yes! <laughs> That's a bad over there like you know i don't know what we'd get but i think this guy's just a, a a pretty pumped up personality john bravo is the driver's name right and that's the thing he's, he's a personality and i guess unbeknownst to the mayor at the time he uh is on periscope and i guess people like watching him he seems like an interesting and colorful guy and uh, has some engaging conversations with his passengers enough so that he's got a little bit of a following on on periscope and people watch live streams of his of his trips. It's called Shotgun, the Uber experience. That's what this guy calls his show. Which is odd, because he drives for Lyft, right? <laughs> it's very odd. <laughs> so, the conversation, though, gets into Uber. And let me just say beforehand, now, here's one of the things that, that Ninchi's apologizing for, because he uses a, a rather crude and unfortunate word here to describe Uber's CEO. 
And, you know, maybe you could argue that, that he gets goaded into it a little bit by this, this driver who's not shy at all about uh, throwing words around like this. And so then she kind of gets caught up in all of it. Maybe he's trying to impress this guy. So then she starts using the same word. And so you're going to hear this word in this clip, just, just so you're aware. And so, I mean, it's a question of whether he should be using language like this and whether he should be essentially name-calling when it comes to describing the CEO uh, of a company. So here's the exchange. Uh, and she's sharing his thoughts about Uber and Uber CEO. You tell me, being the the mayor of Calgary, what you you probably know something that I don't. So they're the worst. Why are they well, why are they dicks really? They are honestly the worst people in the world to do. Uber's the worst people in the world. I have never dealt with people like this before. So explain to me what makes them so. In bad? fact, I, I was at a conference and I met Travis, right? You know, the CEO, and I was like, oh, it's because you're a dick. And this has mm. percolated and it just through the entire the organization. Of the CEO has trickled down. That's uh -huh. what you're saying. Uh -huh. It's a little dicks. So, you know, they Big come in and them. they're the most sophisticated people in the world. And you regulators don't know what you're talking about. And you're in the pockets of the taxi cartel and blah, 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 blah. Okay. So he, he doesn't like Uber. Doesn't like how Uber does business. Doesn't like the CEO of Uber. You know, this look. That may well be that a lot of CEOs are to use the word Nench used. Mm -hmm. uh, but if that means getting stuff done, maybe sometimes you need to be. I mean, whatever people think about Uber or Uber CEO, Calgary changed its bylaw. We've got a new bylaw, which is certainly a step in the right direction. Why do we have it? Why did city council make those changes? Because Uber came in and, and Uber's approach was, we're going to come in and we're going to try to get some changes brought in. And they did. Now, obviously, there's still not two Ubers liking, but things wouldn't have changed had Uber not come in. I don't really know why the personality assessment of the CEO of a company by the mayor of Calgary is, is important. I, I get that they're just having a chat here, but um, I don't really care, you know, what the mayor thinks of any business leaders. It doesn't affect me. You, you're certainly welcome to make those decisions on your own. I've heard that Travis is kind of a jerk. Uh, as such, I don't feel comfortable uh, uh, going in Uber because I don't want uh, even a dime of my money going into that guy's pocket. That's certainly one thing. But should the mayor be making decisions about bylaws in the city and about which businesses can operate based on how impressed he is with the candor of an individual that he meets at a conference? We were going to allow... This uh, health care provider to operate in the city. But I tell you, the uh, president of the company rubbed me the wrong way. So we kiboshed that one. <laughs> well, that's just it. Yeah, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. I mean, uh, either they can operate here or they're not. We could uh, line up all the CEOs of companies that currently operate in Calgary. We could sit down and have a beer with each of them. And uh, maybe a lot of them would rub us the wrong way. It doesn't matter. Are, are they a legitimate business? Are they offering a service that, that Calgarians want? And uh, is, is the city doing anything to prevent that from happening? And in the case of, of Uber, clearly they are. Now, here's the other, and here's where to me, now everyone's focusing on then she's language and the name calling and, right. and that, but here's the bigger issue to me. Did the city target Uber? Did the city go out of its way to target Uber? And did the city recruit actual criminals to try to get hired as, as Uber drivers? Because that's pretty sensational. That's the claim that, that Nenshi makes here. And so, you know, one of the things was they did start and operated illegally in Calgary for about three weeks or something before we got the court injunction. Right. And we're no fools. So we sent people to sign up to be Uber drivers 
to see if they could get through the background check. Mm, just to see. How we found registered sex offenders. How and people with, I don't want to know. And people with convictions for violent crimes. I don't want to know why we know those people. Wow. I just don't want to know. Nobody will tell me, and I don't want to know. Wow. But they all made it through Uber's theoretical background screening. Wow. And so we were like, you know what, Uber? We're going to do the background screening. Fine. The cops are going to do the background screening. Okay, this is what needs to be sorted out. Mm-hmm. Uber says, look, we use the CPIC checks. That's what Hockey Alberta uses, Girl Guides, paramedics. A lot of people use this. It's criminal background check. And then she is claiming, and you heard him say specifically, that multiple convicted criminals, registered sex offenders, passed the screening. I don't know how they all got through. And I don't want to know how I know, and I don't want to know how we know all these these awful criminals, but we found them, and... You know, we use him as undercover agents from time to time or something. So he's describing quite an elaborate and, and questionable undercover operation. And then the next day when she puts out his apology, he says, this is the, the part that deals with this. He says, as I announced publicly earlier this year, the city became aware of at least one driver who passed through the background check used by Uber in Calgary, despite having an active assault charge against him or her. This is the extent of my knowledge on the matter. I am not aware of anyone convicted of a sexual offense clearing the background check used by Uber in Calgary. Watching the video, I realize I did not explain myself clearly at all. I apologize for any confusion that I have caused. Okay, now that we've heard that apology, let's play the clip again. Because he didn't not explain himself clearly here. He was suggesting that something occurred. This isn't an unclear explanation of what he believes the facts are. This is him illustrating a point to this uh, particular Lyft driver. Well, and and so why is he telling the story? Mm -hmm. Is he under the impression that that happened? Did somebody tell him that that happened? So this is this is what I, I think we we need to to understand here, and and the mayor needs to offer an explanation, and I think others on council are saying that the mayor needs to offer an explanation. Does the city do this? Does the city go out and and call people up? We have a database of people who are registered sex offenders and say, hey, listen, understand you're a registered sex offender. Uh, Can you go apply to be a driver at Uber and then tell us what happens? You know, we know that last last year there was an injunction against Uber, right? Uh, they They set up shop, they were operating, and then all of a sudden the city shut them down. They got an injunction. And we know that there was a sting operation of some sort where they were targeting Uber to make sure that they could catch them uh, operating uh, outside the, the, the boundaries. Well, they were the targeting drivers. Right, they were. Basically, so, so they'd pose as passengers, and when the driver showed up, they'd give them a ticket. That's right. So we know that there was an injunction against Uber. We know that there was a city initiative set up. Now, Councillor Andre Chabot this morning, and we're tweeting this here at News Talk 770, uh, saying that, uh, you know, he believes that anything that was done ha- was done under, you know, some cone of silence, a little bit of confidentiality, and is concerned that the mayor's comments uh, might have breached that confidentiality. So what does that tell us here? You know, he may have spilled the beans on, on some elaborate operation, uh, or he, he made it up entirely. So to go from, we, you know, there were multiple people who passed the screening, to say, well, there was one person who had not been convicted of anything who passed the screening. Well, that's a big difference. Uh, the mayor has apologized. As you mentioned, he apologized in writing there, and he also had this to say uh, at the start of, uh, of their meeting this morning, a council meeting this morning. Um, there were two things uh, that went on there. Number one was me being a bit of a jerk, uh, and I am sorry for that. Uh, 
certainly uh, one needs to be the same person in public that one is in private, and I think that that is uh, something that we all need to remember every now, every now and then. I am better than that, and we should all strive to be better than that. Okay, stop it with the we and stop it with the one. I mean, you got it. You, you started out strong. Um, there were two things uh, that went on there. Number one was me being a bit of a jerk, uh, and I am sorry for that. And that's pretty much where the apology ends. Rob, it's sort of like, uh, hey, listen, uh, <clears throat> I took your lunch out of the fridge, and uh, sorry about that, but one can't be a lunch thief. And you should also, we should all try not to be lunch thieves. You included, Rob Breckenridge. You, right. I'm looking at you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a bigger problem than just me right. and this thing I did. It's a societal issue, really. <laughs> I mean, who among us hasn't been in a cab in Boston <laughs> spilling the beans about uh, confidential processes? By the way, there, there is the question of whether this was some kind of breach of privacy, whether this should have been broadcast out on, on Periscope, uh, whether people should be watching this, or whether we should have even known what, what the mayor said to, to this driver. Uh, there was, by the way, and it's been pointed out, there was a passenger in the back seat. If you see the video, there's some guy sitting in the back seat, and he's just kind of on his phone the whole time. And then they drop him off, and the ride continues. But Ninchi says all of this, or most of this, certainly the the uh, stuff he's in trouble for, says it in front of this guy, this guy that he doesn't even know. So so I, there's, there's kind of a problem for Ninchi making that claim if he's willing to say this in front of not just this driver, but some guy in the backseat who he has no idea who that is. Right. Uh, we're going to take a break right here. And we're going to come back. We're going to replay for you a, a conversation between Councillor Diane Collier-Cart and uh, Bruce Kenyon from the Morning News here on News Talk 770 that happened this morning. Now, now the councillor has some very, very prudent questions. Uh, for the mayor, but also wants to uh, uh, maybe take a stab, Rob, at the, at the question that that, uh, that you just raised a moment ago, which is, did this happen? Are we actually hiring criminals to uh, to target companies like Uber that would operate in the city? We'll pause here and return after this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Well, I'm talking about uh, Nahed Ninchi's newsworthy Lyft ride. Apparently, this guy drives for Uber and Lyft. How's that it? And, and so that's why. He just but, can't uh, get enough. He's a Harvard student as well. Yeah, there you go. So he's, he says he's earning a good living, likes what he does, and uh, people seem to like his, his service. So, I mean, it's, it's all kind of an argument, I think, in favor of letting this uh, operate here in Calgary. But in the meantime, we're talking about what, what the mayor said. Right. Councillor Diane Collier-Cart was on uh, the morning news this morning with Bruce Kenyon. And uh, I, I don't know if that apology that the mayor gave is going to satisfy her, but that's certainly what she wanted, uh, among other things. From what I know at this point in time, and I've been very actively involved with the taxi file in Calgary for at least the last 10 years in cleaning up the industry and then changing the bylaws so that we can open it up to... Uh, to the free market system. But before I get into that, um, you know, I will be having a little chat with Nahed this morning on how you deliver an apology. <laughs> an apology is not three pages long in a press release. An apology is three parts. I apologize, I'm sorry. I take full responsibility for what I said, and I'm going to learn from it. So, um, this kind of got lost in this whole um, uh, long statement. So having said that, though, I'm very pleased that he did apologize because we don't need any more lawsuits coming our way and dealing with matters like this. Okay, so she's clearly hearkening back to the, uh, the, the lawsuit with Cal Wenzel when uh, the whole Godfather thing happened. 
And uh, if you were listening to us last week when we were speaking to the spokesperson for Ready to Engage, I asked the question. I said, hey, look, Alan, if that's how you guys feel about the, what the mayor said about you, then you should sue him. And he said, well, we just might. So that in response to allegations of criminal activity at, uh, at one of their sessions, their engagement sessions. Right. So Diane Collier-Card saying, look, we don't need more lawsuits. Well, and you got to wonder. I mean, I, I don't know that uh, at Uber necessarily wants to go down that path. But uh, when the mayor is saying and what ended up being in a public forum that uh, there, there's all these convicted sex offenders who were able to pass Uber's uh, screening. I mean, it certainly reflects poorly on the company and it makes it sound like Uber doesn't really have any standards in place and that any kind of uh, awful, horrible, dangerous person can just go be an Uber driver. So uh, I, I wonder, I wonder if we end up in, in court talking about this. And, and once again, maybe because of uh, the mayor shooting off his mouth, uh, you know, he, he could argue that I didn't know this was being periscoped. But what does he know about what happened? And, and did he make this up? Did he exaggerate? Or did this actually happen? Well, you know, forget about the, the whole periscoping of it, right? And, and you talk about the exaggeration of it. And he says, I don't know how these sex offenders and how these violent offenders got through the process. The question that we should have as taxpayers, as citizens of the city, is did this actually happen? I'm not so sure. Rob, I don't know about you. Diane Collier-Eckhart says she's not so sure it happened. Well, first of all, I'm not convinced that this truly happened. All so right. Let, let, me, let me put that out there. What I do know is that um, the Livery Transport Service did an undercover operation last fall. And, uh, and they did that because Uber was operating in Calgary, which was not in compliance with the old bylaw, and the city needed evidence to take before the courts to get an injunction against Uber so that they wouldn't operate. And so that was the only thing that we were briefed on, uh, not even in camera, but it was after the fact we were told about. So... It's it's difficult because now it's out there, right? I mean, you know, we talked about how the, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube on this one. And, and the concern is that it's going to be difficult to, to walk the comment back. There's a lot to be held account, uh, to account here because, uh, you know, now that that claim has been put out there, no, how, no matter how much you try to retreat from that statement, it really, it's now turning into a he said, he said, she said. So the, the problem then with the claim is that, look, if, if that's what happened and if the mayor is right and if the mayor is, is telling us honestly that the city hired a, a, a known, a convicted sex offender or hired a convicted violent offender or, as he indicates, at least, a, at least two, more than one of these individuals to undermine Uber's process, then what sort of litigation does that open them up to? Well, yeah, that, that's what's disturbing about it. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and what I've been seeing from people who defend the mayor here, and people were buying this, and that's the problem, and that's what makes it a problem for the mayor, and why Uber might have an argument against what he said, is that people believe this. And the response I was getting from a lot of people saying, well, hey, hang on a sec, we exposed Uber's background screenings. Shouldn't we be talking about that? Good on the mayor for exposing Uber's background screening. I sure don't want to take an Uber if it's going to be driven by some, some violent pedophile. Because people were believing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, we obviously authorities do. We, we send minors into liquor stores to see if they can buy liquor. And then uh, if they can, then the owner of that liquor store will be fined. But we don't let the kids go drink the liquor. Obviously, there, there's a responsible way of doing this. 
Um, so if, if the city wants to argue that in order to test certain companies, they need to do this from time to time. Maybe they only use names from a database. They don't actually recruit these criminals to go out and do this. Uh, but then they should be upfront about that. And uh, what's happening here is the mayor's obfuscating. He made a claim and he's walking it back. And um, But it's, it's out there already because it doesn't seem as though it happened. And the mayor says he'd prefer to have ride-sharing companies use the police to do the background checks. Well, you know, the P in, in CPIC stands for something. And other agencies use this too. If we don't think it's sufficient, then let's deal in facts here and why we don't think that's sufficient. For the mayor to say, I don't want to know how we know these people, though, that's a problem. Um, you know, when the statement was made that uh, when, when, when the head said that, I don't know, I don't want to know, I said exactly the opposite. I do want to know. Yeah, and so, so do we. I mean, that, that's, it, it's not that I want to know. Roger Kincaid wants to know. It's that I want to know that the mayor has gone through the, the whole screening process on this matter. Guys, is this a good idea? Who are these people? How are we going to quantify this and explain to people why the city of Calgary stroked a check to some known sex offender for services rendered? Like, that's a question that we're going to have to answer down the road. I just want to make sure all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. Right. And can I point this out? Because the mayor might be digging himself a bigger hole here this morning from what I'm, I'm seeing. Now, the, the mayor is, is at City Hall, at City Council, and he, he's apparently raising the point that they knew about this one person charged with assault. They knew about that in February. And so now the mayor's claiming, well, it's interesting everyone wants to talk about that now. Why was nobody asking me about it in February? Trevor Howell from the uh, Calgary Herald is covering City Hall today. And he tweets, are you kidding me? Again, the media asked repeatedly at the time how the mayor or the city knew that someone with some sort of criminal history slipped past Uber's background check. So now the mayor is apparently making false claims about the media. Say, nobody asked me about that in February. And, and here you got a reporter who covers City Hall saying, what are you talking about? We asked you repeatedly at the time. So uh, I guess he can't help himself. You want to hear the extent of the city's damage control on this file so far? I would just say to Uber that, you know, as an elected official of this city, I, I certainly apologize for what's happened. Okay, so there you go. You got the counselor from Ward 14 who's saying I'm Thank sorry. You. I'm basically embarrassed by this. Yeah. Uh, so th this is there's some big questions that come out of this and a lot of questions that, uh, that might come from you. But what are your thoughts on the matter so far? Is this a, a major embarrassment for the city or did the mayor champion this city in some way, shape or form? Uh, don't let our thoughts uh, color yours. If you disagree with what we've had to say, we'd certainly like to hear from you. 974-8255. There are people calling in to say the mayor should quit. And there are people calling in to say uh, we need to calm down. <laughs> We're going to get to a lot of phone calls after the news to 1030. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Happy lunch. Happy lunch to you, Rob Breckenridge. Uh, well, thank you, I guess. All right. Uh, <laughs> try again tomorrow. Uh, the soup today is duck soup. Um, you know, this is an interesting thing. And, and I got an interesting text message, actually, over the news to, to noon here. Um, talking about fentanyl, the fentanyl crisis that we find ourselves in in this province. And someone saying, doesn't this speak to the fact that we should legalize all drug use? Being on drugs is a victimless crime, and I think Vancouver or BC has it right. I'm not a drug user, nor do I condone the use of drugs, but I do believe if you want drugs bad enough, you'll always find them. Um, now, the, the point is that like, we, can, we can argue for and against making a drug like fentanyl legal. Uh, fentanyl is not illegal in the sense that it's used in uh, some uh, medical um, applications. Right. But it certainly is illegal, and it's a, a hell of a scourge on our streets. 
Now, the, the, the problem, though, is that some of the other drugs and methods uh, that you would use to manage this fentanyl outbreak, if you will, um, are, are also unsavory to certain individuals. You know, is it, whereas heroin is something that people don't want to see on the streets, there's a lot of people that also don't want to see methadone used. So you understand that that's a quandary that we find ourselves in in trying to deal with this thing that's claimed hundreds of lives in our province. Well, and uh, as the Herald notes today, it's been six months since uh, Alberta Health Services uh, unveiled that it had a, a draft plan. Uh, it's supposed to be a multi-year strategy, a three-year strategy that's, that's to be announced in the near future is all we're being told. So this plan has been delayed already, and uh, it, it is a crisis since 2012, more than four, 500 Albertans have died from fentanyl overdoses. Uh, so we don't even yet have a draft plan, and it seems like more of a, of a long-term plan is, it, is it what's needed to address the crisis right now. Uh, Dr. Hakik Varani joins us on the line, public health and preventative medicine with addiction medicine, also an assistant clinical professor at the University of Alberta's Department of Medicine, and he is medical director of the Metro City Medical Clinic in Edmonton. Dr. Varani, welcome to the program. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, well, you're quoted in this, this same article uh, describing the response from the province as, as garbage. So, I, I mean, some, some harsh words, obviously, but you're concerned that we're not doing anywhere near what we need to be doing. Yeah, well, I mean, you probably heard last week that um, police announced that in Edmonton around Christmas, there was a, a major seizure of a drug that was determined uh, earlier this month to be W18, which... Um, it is a, a drug we think is more toxic than fentanyl and, mm-hmm. and very, very possibly many times more toxic than fentanyl. And so, you know, having been involved in this issue from both a public health perspective and, and clinically treating addictions, um, you know, forgive me for being frustrated with just how long it's taken to contemplate a strategy. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the question, I guess, that, that we would have for, from, uh, for experts like yourself, though, is do, do we already have the, the tools and the understanding available? And so if you just unleash the medical community on it, they'd, they'd have it figured out. It's the political community that can't figure it out. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the, the nuances around this is that we in medicine, um, you know, need to take some responsibility for the demand for opiates that we've created. Um, you know, over the past decade or longer, We've been um, pretty fast and loose with how we've prescribed opiates for any number of conditions where there's lit- little evidence um, to demonstrate that they that they are um, effective and safe treatments, and and there's great evidence that they come with a lot of harm associated. But you know, be that as it may, I think that you're right. Physicians need to play a leading role in examining the evidence and and um, providing public health and clinical interventions that can help people who have run into trouble with opiates. And that's what we're seeing a lot of, and we're seeing it in every single demographic. Literally, um, no demographic is spared from this, what you call the scourge of uh, opioid addiction across our population. How much of it is a resources issue, though? Because uh, there's the concern in Calgary, for example, it's a 35-day wait to get into the uh, methadone clinic. It's the only one in in Calgary. So there's an example where assistance for addicts is hard to come by. Yeah, you're right. Um, there's certainly a resource issue, but I don't think that the resource issue is that we don't have enough resources. I think our issue is that we've put resources um, exactly in the wrong places. Um, you heard uh, recently our, our provincial government talk about expanding access to abstinence-based detox for people who um, have opioid addiction. And unfortunately, not only is, is detox quite expensive, but when we force people into abstinence-based approaches um, for opioid addiction, what we tend to see is that following um, that intervention, 
the risk of relapse remains particularly high. And we've, in fact, increased the risk that upon relapse, somebody will overdose and die because of a decreased tolerance to opioids, particularly when our street supply of illicit opioids is so toxic, like fentanyl and now possibly W18. So it, it's not just that we're um, that we have a resource shortage in the areas that are um, that can safely and effectively treat opioid addiction. It's, it's also that we've put resources in the wrong places, and where we may actually not only be ineffective but do some harm. Right. I think we got to explain the other side of that, though, because. Um, or not the other side, but the other stream, if you will, because, you know, for, for, for people who aren't struggling with uh, fentanyl addiction, who aren't struggling with uh, any sort of addiction, they, they just sort of hear it and they say, you know, how else would you get yourself off the drug? But we know that there's other treatments available that help people uh, cope with the withdrawal without providing a euphoria that effectively lets people work and be productive and not destroy their families, etc., that's correct. So what you're describing is um, what we call medication-assisted treatment. And in fact, all the way at the level of the White House, um, there's been a call for expansion and access to medication-assisted treatment um, rather than forcing patients into what we call abstinence-based treatments that are not only ineffective, but as I described, unsafe. So we're talking about uh, medications like uh, methadone, as you mentioned off the top, and another one called buprenorphine or suboxone um, that are medications that don't give patients a euphoria, but allow them to take them once a day, um, keeps them from having those intrusive cravings for opioid drugs and the excruciating uh, withdrawals associated with them, and allows them to be socially productive and work in jobs and parent their children and volunteer at soup kitchens and what have you and, and give back. And, you know, thankfully, I, I'm very fortunate to be able to participate in that kind of recovery with um, with patients. And it's it's quite rewarding and remarkable to see um, where, you know, you were once in a position where things couldn't get any worse to a place where people have quite literally turned their lives around. The, the remarkable thing, though, is that this treatment is extremely uh, cheap um, compared to some of the things that we're offering. And that, that's a, quite a head-scratcher. As I understand it, you're, you're Metro City Clinic, which is in Edmonton, but uh, you're, you're going to be helping with the response in, in southern Alberta. Yeah, so this is, a, I think, an example of where Alberta Health Services um, and uh, physicians can partner together and, and provide treatment in a kind of a nimble and responsive way. So um, as we saw uh, at the beginning of last year, um, it, some of the heartbreaking stories that were coming out of a, a southern Alberta um, First Nation community called Blood Tribe, um, where you know we were seeing ridiculous numbers of overdose deaths for such a small population and, and associated dysfunction that was occurring in um, uh, in this uh, community. Um, so, so yeah, some of our physicians who are specialized in the treatments of, uh, of addictions are cooperating with Alberta Health Services to, um, to put together a treatment approach for uh, people living in that part of the province. You know, I, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just throw a question from our audience at you here, doctor, because every time we talk about, you know, the, the extreme toxicity of these drugs, uh, some of the same questions come up. And so one question is, would we rather have the old oxycodone problem back? And the other question is, what would lead somebody to try uh, fentanyl in the first place? And I think the two kind of play off each other. Yeah, those, those, uh, those are both good questions. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the arrival of fentanyl and the resurgence of heroin in our population, I think, speaks a lot to the fact that, you know, we practiced good public policy in addressing the OxyContin issue, but we did so in the absence of other interventions. So we had this um, 
this demand for opioid drugs that was uh, contributed to largely by the practice of medicine and the influence of pharmaceutical companies. And then when we pinched off the supply of oxycodone by, um, by reformulating it into a more kind of abuse deterrent or tamper-resistant uh, formulation called oxyneo, we have this remaining unmet demand for opioids because we've not treated the people who are struggling with addiction. And as a result, you see new molecules coming into the illicit market, and the easier that they are to traffic, unfortunately, the more toxic that they are. And, and what I mean by that is that you heard um, fentanyl is 50 times or 40 or 50 times as toxic as heroin and 100 times as toxic as morphine. What that means is that a kilogram of fentanyl is the same as 100 kilograms of morphine. So you can imagine, or 40 or 50 kilograms of heroin. So you can imagine if you're a drug trafficker, um, one is a lot easier to get around than the other. And that's probably why we saw uh, fentanyl and now W18 entering the illicit market. But on the question of um, why is it that people would be inclined to try fentanyl, I can't tell you um, how often I see young people who present for treatment of opioid addiction who come to our clinic having never smoked marijuana and never drank alcohol. And that I don't think is a reflection of young people wanting a higher high and being more dysfunctional um, than they were when, when you and I might have been young. Um, I think it more reflects the availability of opiates in the, illicit, in the illicit market, and that has everything to do with the demand for them. And the demand has everything to do with the unmet need for treatment for opioid addiction. In terms of the harm reduction approach, uh, and, and I know Alberta Health Services has made the point that they've made uh, naloxone, I believe it is, uh, more available. This uh, can, can save someone who's overdosing from fentanyl. But even to, to address it before it gets to that point, would, for example, safe injection sites help mitigate the problem? Yeah, you know, I think that both of those interventions have solid public health evidence um, in terms of reducing the impact of opioid overdose in a population. So for sure, naloxone distribution programs save lives. Um, that's the antidote for opiate overdose. And in Alberta, um, ever since our former health minister, Stephen Mandel, authorized um, public health to expand that program, um, I think public health colleagues of mine, particularly in Calgary, have, have really championed um, the distribution of naloxone as one um, intervention to to help with this trend. But, I mean, make no mistake, naloxone does not treat opioid addiction. Um, I think safe, safe drug consumption spaces are also an important intervention because not only does it give people um, a place where they could be supervised in case something untoward happens, but it also gives people an off-ramp, a compassionate place where they might ask for additional treatment services if they're ready for them. Um, and, and not to mention, it also protects communities from the hazards that might come out from unsafe use of drugs in um, unsupervised spaces. So those are two what we'd call harm reduction interventions that have really, really solid evidence. And I think not only do they have solid evidence, but if you talk to moms who've lost their children uh, to preventable deaths from opiate overdose, 201, they'll mention these types of harm reduction interventions that may have made a difference in the lives of their kids and in the outcomes for their families. Um, but in addition to those two interventions, I think, guys, that the, the um, interventions that are critical in a strategy are expanding access to medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction, and that does treat addiction, and it does treat the um, underlying demand that's causing you know, fentanyl and W18 and drugs of the like to enter the illicit drug market. And I think addressing our longstanding and and I'd say inexcusable problem that we have with the prescribing of opiates in North America, 
uh, and the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on the practice of medicine and drug approvals is critical to addressing this problem. I think what they've um, th- what they've realized in, in British Columbia, where they've declared a public health emergency in this opioid crisis, is that ongoing and systematic um, public health surveillance or monitoring of opioid and other drug-related harms, including overdose death, is critical in an overall strategy. And then some of the things that you mentioned at the beginning about smarter drug policy and you know, um, changing this war on drugs and people who use drugs into a, an approach that's more mitigating the risks of substance use and providing compassionate treatment for people who run into trouble. I, I think that those compose what should uh, make up a, an effective strategy. And these are not new ideas. Um, we've been talking about these things since 2008, 2009 in Alberta that I've been involved and long before that that I've not. And so you can imagine that, you know, in that eight to 10 years of involvement, um, the fact that we don't have a strategy to um, improve access to, to drug treatment that's safe and effective in Alberta is really, really frustrating, not just for me and colleagues, but also for um, families mm-hmm. like the ones who went to the United Nations last week to talk about this problem you know, from Alberta and from Canada. Uh, why they're so frustrated and angry that it's taken this long. Yeah, and not to sound crass, doctor, but also for, from a taxpayer's perspective, why we've decided to go with a more expensive uh, and less effective uh, method as well. Well, that's not, that's not crass at all, right? We're, <laughs> I mean, we're at, we're at uh, $30 or $40 oil, and, and so these are real considerations. I think, you know, we really do have to be utilitarian here. We need to provide yeah. the greatest amount of benefit to the greatest number of people um, and at the very least, we have to make sure that what we're doing won't cause harm if it's not ineffective. Um, so, you know, I think that the resources, uh, those considerations are very real. And thankfully, in this, in, in the context that we're in, um, the science supports those interventions that actually cost less money and can be available to more people. Yeah, well said. Dr. Varani, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the insight on this. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Hakik Varani, he's an assistant clinical professor at the Department of Medicine, University of Alberta, uh, an expert in public health and preventative medicine and addiction medicine. Also, as mentioned, the medical director of the Metro City Medical Clinic in Edmonton uh, that is going to help with the uh, the, the public health response uh, in southern Alberta. we got to take a break here. We're back with more right after this. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.